friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, your hostess, and we have a great show lined up today. Later in the hour, Heather Hacker will be joining us. She's an accomplished lawyer who has been working with us recently to write an amicus brief for the Supreme Court. The High Court recently agreed to hear the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which involves Mississippi ban on most elective abortions after 15 weeks. The brief was written by the Catholic Association, me and two other women doctors, explores the changes in technology and science, especially ultrasound, which is my own field, and how viability is a completely different idea given the window into the womb. But first we talk with a good friend of the show's Stephen Mosher of the Population Research Institute, and there we have a lot to talk about. He's an expert on China. We'll talk about terrible uh, conditions there for the Uyghurs, also what's going on in Hong Kong. Welcome to the show, Stephen Mosher. Well, it's good to be here with you again. I'm very happy that you're with me. You're a person that I have a tenderness for you because thanks to you in, in some part, and not an inconsiderable part, I have a little girl from China because I was oh. very mm-hmm, I was That's very wonderful. affected. I was very affected by your reporting of the tragedy that is the one-child policy in yes. China and the horrors around that. Well, every baby girl adopted from China is a life save. So you've given a new life to your daughter. She'll bring joy to your life. And of course, you've given her life. So I'm very glad to hear that. I'm uh, I'm actually the godfather of a lot of little adopted baby girls and Aww. handicapped children of both sexes across the United States. So uh, the problem, of course, of China's one-child policy will reverberate down through the generations. They now have a population that's aging and dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, they now are trying to get their birth rate up after, you know, after killing 400 million unborn children in abortions. Wow, it's it's a tragedy that's going to unfold for decades to come and generations, really, as you say. I don't know, maybe you're not keeping track of this, but do you envision the, the adoption program restarting after the shutdown, after the COVID shutdown? No, I think that China is going to want to keep all of its children to itself from now on. Uh, this year, 2020, is a year that China's population actually will begin to decline. Uh, The official release numbers from China, of course, are fabrications, as are all statistics from China. But in fact, China's population is aging, and this year will begin uh, to fill more coffins and cradles. So they really have, have created a demographic trap for themselves. Uh, that they've fallen into by eliminating half of the last two generations. I mean, the one-child policy was in place uh, from 1981 uh, through 2016. They put in a two-child policy in 2016, but guess what? The younger generation of Chinese don't want to have children, or they stop at one, and many of them don't get married at all. So the long-term problem of China is not too many children, it's too few children. And uh, I'm very much afraid that the Chinese Communist Party is going to turn it around in the same heavy handed fashion that they forced down the birth rate years ago, they will now begin to force up the birth rate by forcing women to get pregnant, even if they don't want to. That is a terrible projection. I hope that it it's not true, but it does make complete sense uh, from a communist party that has that kind of iron control over the population. I mean, decades and decades of forced abortion and raising people's homes when, when they went ahead and got pregnant with child number two or number three. I mean, these are people that are capable of anything to pursue their ends. They really are, and they regard the people whom they fondly refer to as the masses as really nothing more than a kind of herd. And 30 years ago, 40 years ago, they decided to thin the herd. And now they've decided that the herd has gotten too thin and they're going to have to force the birth rate up again. So the Communist Party leaders have no concern for human life. They are actually the biggest killing machine in human history, uh, probably not counting the 400 million 
million abortions. They have eliminated about 90 million Chinese from the face of the earth in purges and persecutions of various kinds. So that's uh, that far eclipses Stalin's record. That far eclipses uh, Adolf Hitler's record in terms of the total number of people killed. These are not good folks. And nevertheless, uh, there is a general acceptance of China, despite the history of the Chinese Communist Party. We're seeing some rather scary uh, connections being drawn between between the Communist Party and the administration. I don't know if I want to, we want to delve into that, but there does seem to be a general acceptance. Is it is it because of uh, money? China practices what I call elite capture. They go into Hollywood, they go into the financial center of New York City, they go into the political center of the United States, Washington, D.C., and they identify key decision makers. And they actually approach those key decision makers with sweetheart deals. They invite them to China. They talk about investment opportunities. They provide funding for relatives. Uh, We all know, I think, by now that, that Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, got a billion and a half dollars, $1.5 billion from the Bank of China for his little boutique investment firm, Rosemont Seneca Partners. And it's just amazing. I mean, I, I joke to my son that if I took my son Matthew to China, we would he probably wouldn't be offered a billion and a half dollars of an investment from the Bank of China for any company that he wanted to start. So this was obviously on nothing more than a thinly disguised bribe. But this has been done over and over again. It's not just the Bidens. It's, it's people in the House of Representatives and the Senate, governors, county executives. A lot of people are are in business with China because they have been sought out as potential or or actual decision makers, people of influence in the United States, and the Chinese Communist Party cuts them in on a deal. And the deal is this. uh, We will give you a lot of money. We will allow you to make a lot of money. But from now on, you have to put China's interests ahead of America's interests. You have to try to shape American foreign policy to benefit China Uh, rather than the citizens of the United States of America. This has gone on for a long time. It's now being talked openly about by people like the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and the Director of National Intelligence, John Ratliff. But a lot of people are implicated. A lot of people have been uh, seduced, suborned, bribed. A lot of institutions have been infiltrated in the United States as part of a long-term plan by the Chinese Communist Party to dominate the political and economic process in the United States. When you look at it and see what's going on, as I do, I'm able to read, write, and speak Chinese. I fear for the future of my country. Why should regular Americans care? I mean, you and I care. Uh, for instance, because we care about Chinese people in, uh, that live in China and, and we don't like to see their government uh, assuming more and more control over their lives in, in such a terrible way. Why should an, an average American care that the Chinese seem to have a little too much say in, in, in what goes on? Well, I think because the goal of the Chinese Communist Party is this. China wants to dominate not just Asia, but it wants to dominate the world. It wants to replace the United States as the preeminent power in the globe. And it's well on its way to doing that. Its economy is still somewhat smaller uh, than that of the U.S. economy. But the long-term goal is this. By 2049, and this is a kind of 100-year plan, it began with uh, the foundation of the People's Republic of China in 1949. The 100-year plan is that China will come to be the dominant power. It will be the industrial heartland of the world. And the United States will serve three functions. Those functions are this. Uh, We will provide food to feed China's workforce because China can't feed itself. We will provide raw materials to feed China's factory furnaces because China doesn't have much in the way of natural resources. And third, we will be consumers of the products that China's workers and China's factories produce. That's our role, to be a farm, a large farm, for to provide food and raw materials for China and consume the products that result. That's not a future that I want to bequeath to my children and grandchildren. I think the, 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 the world of the future will be a much better place if the United States continues to be the preeminent power in the world and promotes things like human rights, freedom of conscience, freedom of association, freedom of assembly, representative government, all the things that uh, our founding fathers set out over 200 years ago. You paint a very bleak picture, Stephen, and it occurs to me that the chances of this happening grow when we are confronted by the realities of the economic lockdown being 
pushed upon us, you know, with the reason of the actual virus that came out of China. <laughs> Not that it's a conspiracy, but it, there's too many things happening promoting China's cause. The Chinese Communist Party, I believe, deliberately released the China virus on the world, COVID-19. I call it the China virus because it came from China and it was deliberately released on the world. We know that now. Our intelligence agencies concluded that months ago, that China locked down its own cities, cut down its own domestic air travel while letting planes full of Chinese passengers, some of whom were infected with the China virus, travel all around the world. Mm -hmm. So the pandemic originated in China, was spread by China, and China, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, has sought to take advantage of the dislocation that has resulted in Europe, Asia, Africa and here in the United States as a result of this pandemic that they unleashed upon the world. But in terms of why we should be concerned as Americans, it goes beyond the fact that we've had this problem with the China virus for the past few months. This will pass. We have treatments now for the China virus. We have very effective therapies. We have inexpensive drugs that are very effective. Uh, we have a vaccine for those who are interested in taking it. But beyond the China virus, uh, we have to think about this. Our elites uh, on Wall Street, for example, have deliberately transferred companies, factories, and jobs to China mm -hmm. uh, for the last 20 years. So and they true. have done that. They have done that quite deliberately because they are being cut in by the Chinese Communist Party into this deal. And the deal is that we will give you market access in China. We will allow you to get a niche in the China market in exchange for political clout in Washington, D.C. And so if you become a friend of China, you make a lot of money uh, as long as you do China's bidding in Washington, D.C. But what that means for ordinary Americans is this. It means that American factories are closed down, that factory jobs are shipped from the U.S. to China, and that the middle class is devastated by losing well-paying jobs. And of course, the lockdowns have just been devastating to the middle class as well because uh, tens of thousands of small businesses, restaurants, other small businesses have been shut down uh, because of the uh, because of the pandemic. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're speaking to Stephen Mosher of the Population Research Institute and an expert on all things China. So Stephen, I think the way that they're treating the Uyghurs. I'm sure that um, all our listeners have heard about this, but maybe you can give us a little capsule of who the Uyghurs are and how exactly the Chinese communist government is abusing them. Well, we have to understand that, that China is an empire that has survived into the modern age. China proper is the eastern half of the country, but it is also a colonial power because it occupies Tibet, it occupies Manchuria, and it occupies parts of Central Asia. In Central Asia, what used to be called East Turkestan is is where the Uyghurs live. There are Turkish-speaking people, largely Muslim, but not entirely, who have lived in East Turkestan, what the Chinese call Xinjiang, for thousands of years. After the revolution uh, in 1949, the Chinese Communist Party invaded East Turkestan, just as a few years later it invaded and conquered Tibet. But for years after that, the Uyghurs were allowed to live mostly in peace and follow their religion and follow their culture and speak their language. No more. Xi Jinping, dictator for life, Xi Jinping, the head of the Chinese Communist Party, to whom everyone now looks for guidance as the core leader, has said that all minorities in China are to be eliminated. And that elimination is underway with a ferocity that is hard for Americans to understand in uh, in eastern Turkestan. Here's what's being done to the Uyghurs. The men are being locked up, the heads of families. These are men you know, in their late 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, locked up in a huge, newly constructed network of concentration camps in Xinjiang. They're in the concentration camps. They're first forced to work uh, because China has done something that the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany was never able to accomplish. They have made their forced labor camps turn a profit. And these poor Uyghur men are in those concentration camps working to produce goods which are often sold overseas uh, in the United States. So that's what you do with the men. The women left at home, uh, perhaps with small children, are being subjugated in another way. The huge Chinese police force, an occupying army in Xinjiang, is billeted with the women, one policeman per woman. Oh. And so you have the men being arrested, sent to concentration camps, and Chinese men coming in and taking their place in the, in the households, the women and children who are left behind. But that leaves the problem of young adults. What do you do with those between 
between the ages of 16 and, say, 25, as yet unmarried. Well, they're being sold, and I use the word sold deliberately, to Chinese factories on the East Coast and the export area of China, where all the factories are making goods for export, in batches of 100. You can read advertisements in the Chinese press. I have them uh, on my Twitter feed, which show that factory owners, uh, Chinese factory owners, can order Weaker young people in batches of 100 to come and work in their factories. But the conditions are these. You have to have a factory compound with walls around it and gates because the Uyghurs are to be kept locked up except on Sunday afternoon uh, when they're let out for a few hours of recreation in the city that they're in. The Uyghurs come with their own police force. So you don't have to worry about security if you're a factory owner because they come with policemen to watch them and, and make sure they, they don't cause any trouble. They come with their own cooks as well so that they, they'll have food that you can feed them that they're accustomed to. And every day after the long workday, which is 10 or 12 hours long, there is a mandatory study session in Mandarin Chinese because the Uyghurs are to be taught the Chinese language and culture as quickly as possible to wean them away from Uyghur culture and teach them to be good, proper Mandarin speakers. The lessons, of course, focus on not just language, but political lessons. Uh, they learn, for example, to quote the sayings of dictator for life Xi Jinping at length. This is a, this is a three step process to destroy the Uyghurs as a people. You lock up the men, you compromise the women, and you take the young people away a thousand miles away from their homeland and then lock them up and use them as slave labor. That's what's going on in Xinjiang. It is genocide in real time. Case has been presented to the International Criminal Court, which has said we can't start proceedings now because there's not enough evidence, but we're still providing more evidence. This is, this is a tragedy. We have Fortunately, begun, the Trump administration has sanctioned the senior Communist Party official in charge of Xinjiang, this area where these terrible things are being done to the Uyghurs. But much more needs to be done. We should not be buying anything that is made by slave labor anywhere in the world. And how do we know what's being made in those camps? We've been tracking some of the goods that have been produced by these Uyghur serfs or slave labor. There was a factory uh, in northern China that was using the Uyghur young people as slave labor, making Nike shoes. Now, Nike says it has sent the Uyghur laborers home, but we can't be certain that's true. Uh, so there are a lot of name brands in the United States uh, that have been implicated in this. About 25 percent of the world's cotton is actually grown in the deserts of eastern Turkish where the Uyghurs live, and a half million Uyghurs are now being used to pick cotton, to grow and pick cotton, which is then sent to mills in eastern Turkestan inside these concentration camps uh, where the workers are using them to make cloth and, and clothes that is then sent to the uh, United States. So uh, you got to be very careful in buying anything from China. I mean, I boycott. I don't buy anything made in China if I can help it. But certainly where you're talking about apparel, look for goods made in Mexico, the United States. Vietnam, India, anywhere but China. Because if it's made in China, chances are it's made by uh, by these Uyghur, Uyghur slave laborers. And where is the world's will? How are people looking away from this? Well, a lot of people, as we talked about, have been compromised by Chinese money. And and we need to find out, you know, who those people are. And we need to be transparent about what the cost is of doing business with China. Because it's, it's not just the genocide against the Uyghurs, of course. The Chinese Communist Party has now forbidden the use of the Tibetan language in mm. schools in Tibet. Terrible. And so the Tibetan people aren't even able to to teach their children to read uh, in their own native language. The same thing is happening uh, in Mongolia. The same thing is happening to other minorities in China. So it is forced assimilation in all of China. It is literally genocide in among the Uyghurs. And I will say one more thing about the Uyghurs. They are probably the primary source of forced organ transplants in the world right now. There is a new uh, system uh, in China of concentration camps. And at the center of the concentration camp is a crematoria to dispose of the bodies of those quickly who are who have been killed. But many people in eastern Turkestan are being killed for their organs, and their organs are being harvested from them. Of course, they die in the process, and then those organs, the heart, liver, and corneas, and so forth, kidneys, are sold to foreigners who come in and want a new heart, kidney, or liver. China does more organ transplants than any other country in the world, and it does them on demand. That is to say, we have people waiting years for a kidney in mm -hmm. this country. But if you, if you want a kidney from China, you make contact 
contact with the Chinese who are selling kidneys, and they will say, come over on November 16th, and we will have a kidney ready to be transplanted into you. We've already found a tissue match. The only way that can happen, the only way is because they kill people for their organs on demand as soon as they have a buyer. But this sounds like a dystopian novel. It, it doesn't even seem that it could be possible. Well, you know, it seems totally possible, but it doesn't seem as that the world could look away and allow this to happen. Although the world's attention does seem to be focused on Hong Kong. Do you think that there's an opening here for people to start um, reacting, the for, for all governments, world governments to start reacting to, to the oppression? I certainly hope so, because Hong Kong uh, is one of the, the, the great cities of, of Asia. It was, it was uh, started uh, in 1840 when the Chinese government ceded the island of Hong Kong to the British to be used as a trading port. And it has grown uh, over the past two centuries into a city of seven and a half million people, which until 1997 was under British rule. And because it was under British rule, it had what? It had a free press. It had freedom of association. There were free, free labor unions. Uh, there was freedom of conscience. The Catholic Church, uh, Christian churches all thrived uh, in Hong Kong. It reverted in 1997 to Communist Party rule. But the Communist Party promised, under an agreement with Great Britain, that it would be allowed to continue to have its own separate laws, its own separate legal system, respect for human rights, its own separate legislative council, that is its own separate legislature, for 50 years. And guess what? Like every other agreement the Communist Party of China has ever signed, they broke the agreement. They broke it a couple of years ago by saying that the agreement we signed with Great Britain has only historical value. It has no value today. And over the last year, they have locked down Hong Kong. They have now brought Hong Kong into mainland China in a legal sense. So Hong Kong is losing its separate identity. People in Hong Kong are being arrested. My friend, uh, Jimmy Lai, who's a great Catholic, by mm -hmm. the way, I've got a picture of uh, Jimmy Lai, who's a, who's the, uh, who runs the sole surviving free paper, newspaper in Hong Kong, the Apple Daily. Uh, has just been arrested and may be put in prison for the rest of his life. I think he's 73. Um, he may go to prison for the rest of his life. Why? Because he prints uh, accurate news about what's happening in China in terms of the loss of freedom uh, that they were promised by the Chinese Communist Party so many years ago. Um, he's in he's in custody now. Um, as I say, he's he's a great Catholic. I have a picture of him. Uh, sitting in his living room, and he has a picture of the Madonna and child on the wall. And he says he will never surrender. He says he would rather die on his feet than than, uh, than grovel on his knees before the Communist Party. And they will punish him for that, because in China, everyone, everyone with no exception, has to take a knee uh, to the Chinese Communist Party. Um, otherwise, you're punished. He's one of the world's uh, great martyrs, or he's shaping up to be. And, and I and I hope that his uh, visibility, his I mean, he's a billionaire who could who could have left Hong Kong um, anytime knowing that this was happening. But he's he's uh, he has that kind of courage. It's very rare. He chose to stay and fight. And I know that Cardinal Joseph Zen, um, another old friend of mine from Hong Kong, has spoken up on behalf of uh, Jimmy Lai. They know each other well. And Cardinal Zen himself, um, along with other Catholics in Hong Kong, are now in danger of being arrested. And I, I have to tell our listeners that, that the Hong Kong freedom movement uh, that has we have seen in the streets of Hong Kong over the last two years, which is now being crushed, was led by Catholics, uh, by not just Cardinal Zen, but by young Catholics who, because they believe in in uh, in in, in freedom of choice because they believe in, in, in that they were gifted with a free will because they were they believe that uh, the natural law grants them certain natural rights. They stood up against communist tyranny and, and many of them along with Jimmy Lai are now going to be going to prison. A number of them were have been taken across the border uh, to a Chinese prison on the mainland uh, where I'm, I'm afraid they will be very, very badly treated for a long period of time. So it, it's not just Jimmy Lai. There are, there are lots of uh, uh, martyrs now in, uh, in Hong Kong today, martyrs for the faith, who are now 
uh, experiencing a, a dry martyrdom of imprisonment and torture, but who may very well be killed. Uh, and, and we have to understand they're being killed because they're fighting for freedom, but their, their views on freedom come from their Catholic faith. Stephen, it's been wonderful having you on, and thank you for giving us this this capsule of so many things that, that we ought to be concerned about that is going on in China. We only have a minute left, but what can we as uh, regular civilian Americans do to further the cause of freedom in China? Well, I think we all have to educate ourselves on what's happening uh, in that country, and that country is becoming darker and more totalitarian by the day. Uh, Xi Jinping is really, I, I don't want to use the word reincarnation because we Catholics don't believe in reincarnation. <laughs> But he is, he has studied Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao, mm-hmm. one of the great mass murders of human history. And he is modeling himself on Chairman Mao. He wants the church uh, in China to be composed of uh, all of the Chinese citizens who worship not God, but who worship the Chinese Communist Party and its leader, uh, Xi Jinping himself. And, and I would just say we need to pray for our suffering co-religionists in China. And I think we we need to make sure that we are not uh, cooperating uh, with this evil. And uh, if 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 we can um, in in buying things, if we can be careful uh, to buy things made in countries that share our values and institutions, that we would be better off as a people. And Stephen, where can our listeners follow you so that they can uh, learn more about these things? Well, our website at the Population Research Institute is pop.org, P-O-P dot O-R-G. POP is short for Population Research Institute. And uh, we have all of our material on China and on the life issues around the world uh, posted there. Well, thank you very much. Also on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? A Twitter handle is at Stephen W. Mosier. I'm also on Parlor at Stephen Mosier because someday soon uh, we will all be taken off Twitter by the high-tech oligarchs. <laughs> it's true. I totally agree with you. That's not far away, I don't think. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. Again, it's a, it's a delight to have you. Good to talk to you. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and now we're happy to introduce Heather Hacker to the show. She's a brilliant lawyer who just worked with us on the Catholic Association on a brief submitted to the Supreme Court revolving around the Mississippi abortion ban case that will be heard this fall. Heather Hacker is an attorney who has an impressive resume representing the governor of Texas, the attorney general of Texas, amongst others. She's written several briefs submitted to the Supreme Court, and we are really glad to welcome her here today. Welcome to the show, Heather. Thank you very much for having me. Heather, you and I worked together to submit an amicus brief to the Supreme Court. And for me, it was a very exciting thing because I I feel that I'm stepping into history. And that in this very important case of of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is mounting a very serious and a very vigorous challenge to abortion regulation, that abortion law that has been with us for so many decades, that I'm a part of it. And I wonder if you feel that same excitement. Yeah, I think it is very exciting. And I think that the, you know, a lot of people are excited. You know, I've heard people saying that this case may break records in terms of the number of amicus briefs that are submitted to the court. I don't know how many will be submitted in support of the respondents, but in support of Mississippi, I believe there were 76 briefs submitted, including ours. So a lot of people had a lot to say about this. People are very excited about it. And it really presents a very clean opportunity, probably the cleanest opportunity since Casey for the court to reconsider its abortion jurisprudence. So I would agree that it definitely is historic. And Heather, maybe you could explain um, for us what, what exactly is an amicus brief? Sure. Yeah. So court, when it you know decides to take a case, it'll grant a petition for writ of certiorari. And that uh, means that the court will take the case. The court doesn't take all the cases that are appealed to it. In fact, the court only takes a very small number of cases, only about 80 or so cases per year. So it decided to take this case. And so the parties in the case, so the petitioner, um, the one that filed the petition at the court to be heard, and then the respondent, the other side, they each get to file briefs 
in support of their positions. But other people can file briefs called amicus briefs, amicus curiae briefs, which is Latin for friend of the court. So basically, you are acting as a friend of the court and trying to provide information or argument to the court that may be different from what the parties may cover in their briefs or information that an amicus has that's special to them that may not be considered. So typically, things like impacts that the case may have on people that are not necessarily involved in the case. Those are things that the court is interested in knowing about. So they can play a very important role. And very often, the court will actually cite to amicus briefs in their written opinions once they go ahead and decide the case. So they can play a very important role in the court's decision of the case. And even if they aren't ultimately cited, if they're if they're read by the court, they can provide some helpful context that helps the court to make their decisions. So people like us who submit these briefs, we're hoping that we can shed some light on some particular smaller aspect of what the justices are considering. Is that true? Yes, that's right. And the parties only have a very limited amount of space. So there may be lots of issues and lots of information that's relevant to the question that the court is considering, but the parties may not have enough room to do that. And so as amicus, that gives us a chance to present some additional information to the court that we think is very relevant to the court's decision. And that's exactly what we did in this brief. So this brief, I'm very proud of it. I'm, and of course, you did all the legal work, you did all the writing, and I shouldn't be, maybe I shouldn't be proud at all. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but I feel really strongly that it brings a very important aspect to the court's consideration, a very important aspect of, of what has changed in in the science, in the way we relate to fetal life, um, in the way that, that we can appreciate the humanity of the unborn to the court. And that, what has changed is since 1973 and then since Casey was decided in, uh, in the early 90s, there have been so many changes and it makes sense for, for the court to move forward uh, along with science, along with progress, along with change and take another look at how abortion is handled all across the United States. And especially in this context, I think science is very important. Most people don't know this, but Roe v. Wade was decided without an evidentiary record. But there's a lot of discussion of science in that opinion. And so what's very unusual about that is that, you know, normally in our court system, the evidence is presented in an adversarial manner in a trial where lawyers can raise objections and all of the evidence has to meet all of these rules in order to be admitted. It has to be tested and reliable. But that did not happen in Roe. And so all of the scientific information in the opinion by Justice Blackman is based on his own research. And so that is very unique. And so, and I would submit incorrect, because that's not normally the way the courts are supposed to decide these important questions. And so, you know, then when we got to Casey in 1992, Casey said, well, we recognize that some of the stuff that was in that opinion is now outdated. You know, it's been a long time since 19 1973, you know, we're going to revise some things, but we're going to keep the core holding of Roe, which is that women have the ultimate right to decide to choose abortion before viability. Now, again, the court relied on some scientific assumptions in Casey, and Casey was a long time ago. That was in 1992. We know a lot more about abortion. We know a lot more about the fetus since then. Um, things have changed a lot, and so, you know, the, the science has definitely changed, and so to the extent that the court abortion jurisprudence relies on science. It should at least rely on modern science, and it doesn't at this point. And so that was one of the things that we wanted to bring to the court's attention in the amicus brief, is that the science has in fact changed, and the court needs to be able to take that under consideration. And one of the flaws of the Casey opinion is that it doesn't allow states to take into account scientific advancement. It said the only thing that's relevant is whether it's pre-viability and whether it prohibits abortions, and that that's what the Mississippi law did. So the courts wouldn't even allow Mississippi to submit evidence on things like fetal pain or maternal health because it said it was irrelevant, according to Casey. And that's why this case really sets up this conflict where you have this information that's obviously relevant, should be relevant to the, the state's decision to regulate abortion. But you have Casey being this outdated precedent that says the only thing is relevant is viability. In our amicus, we present the opinions of three women doctors, me, a radiologist, and two other doctors who are a neonatologist and an OBGYN. And the, um, those two other women doctors are, are very accomplished in their field. They're very prestigious doctors. I'm just a regular community radiologist. But what we bring to the table 
we feel is a is a real understanding of fetal life because it is our bread and butter it's what we do every day in my case i interpret ultrasounds of unborn babies and the 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 humanity the appealing endearing humanity of the child before viability is something that pours out of the computer screen at me all day long uh, so it's something that i wanted to bring to the attention of the court and something that didn't exist at the time of Roe and at the time of Casey because fetal ultrasound was very much in its infancy in the 70s. It really only started to become widely used late in the 80s. Uh, well, in the 80s and then and then in the 90s, of course, we had more and more advances so that when people saw the ultrasounds of their babies, they could see the the very human features and, and the way the child was existing in a way, in a, ver- in a manner very similar to the way the child exists outside the womb, but inside and connected to his or her mother. Yes, definitely. And I think that that is why the three of you brought such a unique perspective, an interesting perspective to the court, because the three of you all witness the humanity of the child on the ultrasounds as you treat your patients and your patients are both the mother mm-hmm. and the unborn child. And in fact, mainstream medicine treats the unborn child as a patient. And one of the things we talk about in our brief as well is because of those advancements in ultrasound and imaging, medicine is now able to treat the fetus as a patient before it's even born. There are medical treatments that can be given to correct problems, and there's even surgeries that can be done to correct issues with the fetus before it's even born. In fact, the doctors can operate on the fetus in in its mother's womb. And so um, it really creates this drastic contrast because in some instances, the doctors like you are supposed to treat the baby as a patient and, you know, do all the things that come with that, you know, according to your oath as a doctor, the only time that baby, that same baby is not treated with that respect is if it is unwanted by its mother and slated for abortion. And that really shows this this conflict there that's presented for the medical community as a result of the court jurisprudence. Yeah, I, I believe that it, it cheapens and abases our entire profession. The fact that at one point you can be the doctor of a little patient and at, at the next point you're also supposed to be their executioner or the person who can eliminate them. I think that's mm-hmm. terrible for our profession. It really it really lowers it. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking with attorney Heather Hacker about the Mississippi abortion ban case and a recent brief she submitted on behalf of myself and two other doctors and the Catholic Association. You know, you mentioned fetal therapeutics, the fact that we can treat patient, the fetal patient before the patient is viable. That's really a, a, a huge sign that the viability argument that doesn't make sense anymore because it used to be that a child you could only treat a baby as a patient as soon as you could bring him out of of his or her mother and the child could survive outside the womb and so it does sort of make the viability thing in that framework you know it makes a little sense not if not if you have compassion for for babies and as human beings but it makes somewhat of sense but now to know that you can take a baby and this is regularly done a child may have some sort of a disability of some sort that can be the baby can be taken out of the womb operated on and returned to the womb the womb sewn up and the child can uh, finish growing grow to viability and then the, and then be delivered in a perfectly healthy manner so this has really changed our perception of what viability means another thing that's mentioned in our brief and I'm not an expert on this but one of our doctors uh, who is also on the brief is and this is fetal pain at the time of Roe and at the time of Casey it was assumed that babies in the womb or fetuses could not feel pain up until the third trimester and now the science Science has shown us completely different signs. We know now that uh, it could be as early as 12 weeks that the child can feel the pain of dismemberment. That's right. And that that is something that is completely not taken into account by Casey because it, or by Roe. Um, notably, the abortion procedure that ends a child's life at 15 weeks, which is the gestational age that we're talking about with the Mississippi law, is the DNA abortion procedure. And it is a live dismemberment of the child. The doctor takes forceps and literally rips the baby apart in its mother's womb. And that was not the way abortions at that gestational age were performed at the time 
time of Roe. So that's another scientific development. But as a result of all of these um, treatments and surgeries that have developed for the fetus, one of the questions the doctors looked at was, well, we need to consider whether we're doing this humanely, whether these babies can feel pain. And as you mentioned, the science has now changed. And the most recent science suggests that, yes, babies um, may feel pain as early as 12 weeks. And so you have a disconnect there where researchers are saying under all of these circumstances, you know, the fetus and its pain is always a consideration. The only time it isn't is if that fetus is going to undergo abortion. And again, that creates this, you know, abortion is the exception to the general rule of treating that child with human dignity. And if abortion jurisprudence in America allows for that to happen, that just shows how wrong it is. You know, you point out in the brief that in our culture, we protect animals from pain and and ill treatment much more than we protect small humans. That's right. I mean, it would be illegal to kill an animal the way that a DNA abortion kills an unborn human child. And that just shows how wrong it is. I was actually reading just the other day, I didn't find this in time to put it in our brief, but it was guidelines for veterinarians, actually, um, I believe in Australia. And the, the, the guidelines recommended that a fetal animal be treated with the same respect as far as um, its propensity to feel pain as a born animal. That's amazing. And yes. Yeah. And so it just shows what a disconnect there is there. You know, a child's humanity should not depend on whether it's slated for abortion. But that is what Roe and Casey have brought. I read an, I read a piece uh, on, uh, on an, in an ethics journal talking about the possibility of fetal pain. And they, they use the word feticide. And, mm -hmm. and that, that's how that's the name for the killing of a fetus. And they suggested that before a baby is aborted, feticide should be committed. In other words, that the child's life should be extinguished before the baby's dismembered, because then that would make it ethical. And it just made me stop and think of the way that Roe and Casey have, have distorted the way that human beings and our culture relate to the most vulnerable amongst us, the ones who are least powerful, least able to, to speak for themselves, least able to claim our, to claim our sympathy because they're hidden in the womb. Yes. Yeah. And, and that is another, that, that issue actually creates an, yet another conflict with Casey where, you know, there have been states that have tried to at least um, prohibit live DNA abortions. Mm. So requiring feticide before the baby is killed by dismemberment. And so what that is typically is an injection into the fetus that causes its heart to stop beating, which, you know, the fetus could still feel pain. And that obviously is still brutal to that child. But just that, you know, very modest attempt to make that very brutal procedure more humane than it than a live dismemberment, courts have rejected those laws based on Casey. So it really do, goes to show what a bad place we're in if a state can't even rectify this issue of, you know, even, you know, killing unborn children in a way that it would be illegal to kill an animal. Now, the Mississippi law is what it would like to do is make abortions, elective abortions, illegal after 15 weeks of gestation. Now, that is not radical by the world standards, correct? No, it isn't at all. And in fact, the United States's abortion laws are what some of the most liberal in the entire world. Most countries around the world ban abortion after the first trimester, including all but three countries in Europe. So really, our abortion laws land us in the company of countries like China and North Korea, mm. um, which I don't think the United States should wear as a badge of honor at all. Um, I think that's just another indicator that we are out of step. Moreover, you know, polls that they have done very recently have shown that the vast majority of Americans are in favor of restrictions on abortion after the first trimester. So it really is in keeping with, you know, the views of society, um, you know, and, and also the Mississippi law, a lot of people don't know this either, but it only affects less than 100 abortions per year in the state of Mississippi, less than 100 are performed after 15 weeks gestation. So you have a very a law that's very modest in effect, a law that's in keeping with the vast majority of laws around the world about abortion, and a law that's in keeping with the views of the vast majority of Americans. Yet, because of Casey, the courts have said that this law is unconstitutional. Now, Heather, we're almost out of time, and I know it's not a fair question because anything can happen, and uh, anything usually does. <laughs> 
all sorts of strange <laughs> things happen. But well, this is a great case. Uh, this is a, a very well brought. Uh, it's been very well done by the um, by Mississippi. A beautiful brief, I've been told, from the legal perspective, since it has to be explained to me. Um, and there's so much has changed since Roe and since Casey, so much that we can bring before the court to establish the humanity of the fetus. Are you hopeful that finally Roe and Casey will fall and the, and the American people will be able to, to set up, you know, the kinds of regulations that they want around abortion? Um, I am hopeful. Um, you know, a couple of the justices on the court right now have acknowledged how unworkable our abortion jurisprudence is. And, you know, even at a minimum, even if the court doesn't completely overrule Roe or Casey, I think that the a majority of the court recognizes that the way that the jurisprudence is right now is just totally work- unworkable and it needs to be fixed. I mean, as it stands right now, states that pass regulations on abortion. They don't know whether they're actually going to be able to enforce those regulations or whether those regulations are going to be constitutional, essentially until they litigate it all the way up to the Supreme Court, which is not the way that it's not an effective way to govern. So there are so many problems with it. Um, I'm hopeful that the court will recognize that and at the minimum, try to fix those problems so that more state regulations of abortions can be upheld and that states can do more to protect the unborn. But, you know, I also have faith that the court will see that the very weak foundations of the abortion right in the Constitution meet and it and the fact that it's totally out of step with the text history and tradition of the Constitution, that the court will recognize that a majority of the court says that they are textualists. And from a textualist perspective, the abortion right is totally unfounded. So I'm also hopeful that the court will recognize that and will make an effort to pull our jurisprudence back to more in keeping with the text and history of our Constitution. Well, I hope you're right. And if prayers can also help, I know that I'll be praying and our listeners will be praying for a good result in this case. So thank you, Heather. I really appreciate your time today. And and I really enjoyed working with you on this brief for the Catholic Association. Please visit our website at thecatholicassociation.org where you can, you can see more about the brief. You can see the brief itself. It's linked to it. So thank you, Heather, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And I really enjoyed working with you on the brief as well. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation, the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when we will enter into the third week of Jesus' five-week course on the mystery of his body and blood in the Eucharist, which he taught for the first time in the synagogue of Capernaum and renews for us live every third summer. Two weeks ago, we had the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fish, which was a foreshadowing of the multiplication of the meal of the Last Supper throughout every land and time in order to feed the spiritually famished human race. Last Sunday, Jesus told us not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life that he will give us. And in response to the crowds asking him to one-up Moses in the desert, who gave them manna from heaven every day for 40 years, he told them that it wasn't Moses who gave them manna, but God the Father who gives them the true manna. This Sunday, Jesus continues that consequential conversation, which gets into the heart of his teaching on the Eucharist, the faith we need to believe in his Eucharistic presence, and the opposition his teaching on the Eucharist has received from the beginning. Let's take each in turn. First, Jesus emphasized more deeply how he is the true manna, the nourishment God the Father provides for us in the desert of life until we reach the promised land. I am, he said, the bread of life that came down from heaven. And then he adds, I am the bread of life. It's a basic truth that we become what we eat. And Jesus is foretelling that when we consume him, we become one with his life. And since he is eternal, to consume him is to receive everlasting life. He tells us, your ancestors ate the manna in the desert, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. Then he specified even more. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
These are extraordinary words, which we shouldn't water down or pass over. First, they sound cannibalistic, as if Jesus is saying that we need to eat him the way we consume animals, or animals consume carcasses. And once we let those words sink in, we get to Jesus' mind-blowing promise that when we eat him, we will not die, but live forever. He goes on to connect this eating and this promise in the following verses, which we would have considered next Sunday if we didn't have the solemnity of the assumption, but nevertheless, which indicate the path for us one day for ourselves to be assumed. Jesus swears an oath and says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. And he tells us why. Because whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. He tries to explain this mystery by analogy to his own relationship to God the Father. Just as the Father was life sent me and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. The upshot of this mystery is that by receiving Holy Communion, by eating Jesus' body and drinking his blood, his life becomes the principle of our life. And since his life is eternal, death for us will just be a passage into a new and permanent form of life in communion with him who has triumphed over death. There are two responses to Jesus' words. One is doubt. We see it first in the passage this Sunday, When the crowds murmured, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Do we not know his father and mother? Then how can he say, I have come down from heaven? To them he was basically a preaching carpenter from Nazareth, and they were questioning his credentials. Afterward, in what would have been next Sunday section of the Bread of Life Discourse, the crowds questioned the substance of his remarks, quarreling, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Finally, in a passage we'll consider in two weeks, they say, This saying is hard. Who can accept it? We shouldn't dismiss these objections, because many today will raise the same ones. Jesus makes enormous claims, both about his origin, as well as about our destiny through the gift of the Eucharist he gives. The only way either of them could make sense is if Jesus were far more than a man. If he were, God would come down from heaven And if through consuming his flesh and blood, we would be doing more than eating cells with 46 chromosomes, but coming into contact with divine life. That's why we need to pass to the second response to Jesus' words, precisely faith. Jesus said to the doubting crowds, Stop murmuring among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him, and I will raise him on the last day. To believe in his words, Jesus says, we must be drawn by God the Father. Faith is already a gift. He continues, it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to my Father and learns from him comes to me. God the Father wants to teach us, but we need to listen to him and learn from him. That's the fundamental openness of faith, that we're docile to God and to his teaching that we allow him to stretch us beyond our human category, that we trust in his ability to do what by human experience is simply impossible and therefore miraculous. Jesus' listeners at the time didn't realize that God the Father had drawn them to his son there in the Capernaum synagogue and that he was attempting to teach them right then through his son. But they needed to trust in Jesus enough to trust in his words. Words that would only make some sense a year later, when during the next Passover, Jesus would take bread and wine into his hands and totally transform them into his body and blood under the appearances of human food and say, take and eat, this is my body, and take and eat, this is the chalice of my blood. We will have an opportunity to enter more deeply into Jesus' challenging words again in two weeks in the conclusion of the Bread of Life Discourse. But for now, we need to ensure that this conversation with Jesus by faith will be truly consequential. Consequential in allowing God the Father to draw us toward his Son. Consequential in getting us to eat his flesh and drink his blood in a life-giving way. Seeking to become whom we eat and draw our life from him in all aspects of our existence, just as he draws his life from the Father. Consequential in believing that through this act, Jesus gives us eternal life and will raise us up on the last day. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 